Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned and woman-led advertising communications firm in Southern California. At Frazier, we specialize in changing behaviors. That means growing brands, but more importantly, having a positive impact on society. One of the campaigns I'm most proud of is our Talk, Read, Sing campaign that runs throughout the state of California and has 87% awareness. We talk to parents about the importance of talking, reading, and singing from the moment children are born uh, and onward because the brain is developing. 90% of it is developed by age five. But enough about our campaigns. I want to talk about my show, The Deciders. Here, we feature leaders in their fields and change agents in their communities with a focus on how we can contribute more to the betterment of all of us in the community and to our businesses. We ask people to share their stories and reveal their decisions. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important issue, and that's the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Did you know how much women have lost in income since 2020 and just in that year alone? Well, my guest today tells us that the COVID-19 crisis cost women around the world at least $800 billion in lost income in 2020 alone. And that's equivalent to more than the combined GDP of 98 countries. And we know this problem is not going away. It didn't just end in 2020. So let's learn more. Our guest is Mara Bolas, Oxfam America's Associate Director of Economic Empowerment, Gender, Justice, and Inclusivity. Mara, welcome to The Deciders. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Mara, I'm, I'm very impressed with what Oxfam does. I'm a donor to the organization, and I, I, I know that when I donate every month, I'm having an impact around the world. I think you said over 90 countries that you operate in. Is that right? That's right. We operate and we're a global organization that operates in 90 countries around the world. And we fo focus on tackling the root causes of poverty and inequality through development programming, policy advocacy and humanitarian response. You know, it's wonderful. I, uh, at the outset of the program, I asked you about policy, because one of the things that concerns me when I donate money and when I look at programs is I, I am delighted to be able to have an impact on people's lives. And it's wonderful to see how money is making a true difference. But it's also important to sustain the difference. And in, in the case of women in particular, we'll talk about that in a moment. There are systemic issues uh, that are causing women to lose income or to not be able to meet their fullest potential. And so I do want to focus on those as we look at this larger issue of how COVID-19 has impacted women. Uh, the Oxfam report about the amount of lost income for women is very disturbing. Uh, women lost 64 million jobs last year. Uh, tell me about that report. And uh, is that data an exaggeration by any way, or is it a conservative estimate? It's a it's a conservative estimate, unfortunately. Um, we that data was looking at women in formal employment, um, and it was only looking at women who lost their jobs altogether, not women who reduced their not looking at the reduction in, in their wages. Um, and it was, as we know, around the world, um, women predominate in actually in the informal sector, um, in uh, work as street vendors um, or in um, informal domestic work. And that number doesn't include all of those wages that women lost when the economy shut down 
uh, due to coronavirus lockdowns. So the number is likely much, much larger than that even still. That's uh, so it's it's a it's a low estimate and obviously indicative of uh, serious systemic problems. Right. We know that many women had to leave their work during the pandemic in order to care for their children or other family members and, and in many cases to manage with online school. Mm-hmm. So women have been at a disadvantage for some time. And mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about that yep. even before the virus. Right. 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 Well, um, it was interesting. Uh, I was watching. um uh, House Ways and Means uh, committee testimony from April, and the title of the testimony was "Child Care, Paid Leave, and an Economy That Has Failed Women." And my argument is that yes, it's failed women, but it was never intended to support women. We were, it was never intended that way. Um, you know, I think in the U.S. economy, as in so many others, um, women's jobs are viewed as secondary. In many ways, um, were the flexible labor and the economic subsidy that fills in the gap in the times of crisis, where we'll pick up and um, and go in to support uh, that care related or that home related need in a crisis, and then we only come back online once the economy is stabilized and um, and the crisis is averted, and we're kind of always trailing. Um, those um, those those cycles, as opposed to having an economy that's really looking to see how they can how it can support us uh, to be successful. Right. I uh, the we see the effects of these things um, uh, uh, being felt unevenly, but also in in downtimes, women are are most uh, aggressively you know experiencing it. I know in the U.S., one in six women of color are facing food insecurity due to the pandemic. So we're seeing um, devastating effects. And and, uh, there was a New York Times piece on this, and I think it was 5.6 million women in the U.S. were out of a job or downsized. And now it's down to 1.3 million, but very serious with those women. Uh, Let's talk about the, um, uh, the ways we can fix this situation. Uh, and not that they'll be permanent fixes, but the things that are being advocated for, for example, child care, access to child care for low income families. Yeah, I think we need to stop seeing these types of social expenditures as a cost as opposed to as a critical investment. Um, we really need to, I think, radically rethink economic policymaking. And consider the ways that our traditional economic policy um, decision making has um, really focused on short term um, objectives as opposed to long term stabilizing um, growth that materializes um, over time. Um, for example, um, I was looking at the stat, this uh, statistic around the child tax credit, right? Which, from one perspective, could be seen as a cost, but by other estimates, is seen as an investment mm-hmm. in in future economy, in future in future uh, in the future of our economy. Um, by one estimates, um, by four percent of GDP a year. I mean, depending on the amount of the investment in the child tax credit. So we've been so focused on 
I think one part of the economy growing, really kind of what's good for businesses in the short term and what's going to stimulate that um, aspect of economic growth without looking at what's going to keep the people in our economy from falling through the cracks and contributing and, and, you know, doing everything that they can in order to be successful and really be supported by our government in doing so. Yes. I, you know, I think the model and the way in which we have looked at uh, work is very much through male eyes, right? The, the notion that people who will who want to work will work, uh, that they can uh, work as hard as they can and, and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and they'll be successful and they'll make money without looking at the other issues that are uh, 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 impinging on their lives. And I mean, it's been very evident in the, uh, you know, in the, the pandemic. Uh, men continue to work from home if they're fortunate enough to be able to do that. Women who work from home, I, I know, tell stories of not turning the camera on, not being right. able to offer because they have the children in the background. Right, right, right. Because right. we were expect we're expected to step in in a crisis. Exactly. Because exactly. the expect we it's a, it's a subsidy. You know, someone famously has said, "Other countries have social safety nets. America has women." Ah. Uh, Yes. Right. Yes. We are those social safety nets. And really, the the awful part of it is that we as women have been programmed that, you know, when we lose our jobs, when we scramble desperately to find a place to kids, keep our kids safe when we don't have paid leave, that we blame ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Women and um, and mothers will blame themselves first. And then I think after that, if there's a partner, they'll blame the partner. But rarely do we think about blaming, looking around and saying, where, where are the government programs? Right. right? So we've right. been, we've been kind of taught this narrative that this is in our power to control. And if we can't control it, we're a failure. It's as opposed fault. to right. it's your fault, right. as opposed to looking around at the system around us and saying, is this system working for me? And if not, what can I do about it? All right. And we've been doing a lot of uh, writing about this and talking about it. And I think the good news from the pandemic, if there's any at all, is that it's revealed you know, what a uh, unfair impact it had on women. Mm -hmm. We've known about gender equity issues, and I know that's one of your areas of focus. I think the World Economic Forum uh, said that closing the global gender gap has increased by a generation. By a generation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's be just because of the negative outcomes in 2020. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Um, so I think that statistic looks at generally gender equality. But when you look, I mean, when you look at the pay gap, right, if the pay gap is kind of par part and parcel of this. It's both a driver and an outcome of everything that we've seen in 2020, because, you know, on, on the one hand, rational decision making says the parent that makes, makes less is going to be the one that pay that's one that stays home. Right. On the one hand. On the other hand, that then drives the gender pay gap, because yeah. Even in the event before coronavirus, women were 10 times more likely to stay home with a sick child of course, right. in a cisgendered family and a heteronormative family than the male partner, regardless of whether or not she had access to paid leave, right? And so that's lost income, right? That is one, one small contribution to the $800 billion that we're talking about. And in general, even before the pandemic, Globally, when you aggregate, 
women's income was half of men's income. Women around the world make half. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the income gap, not the pay gap. And only 90 countries around the world have um, legislation that polices the pay gap. So what are we doing then? We're saying it is more important to me that the, 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 um, the costs of equity are kept at the quaffs of achieving equity aren't worth it, right? Worth that, it. Nice. They're not worth it. They're not worth it to apparently to our, our legislators or to our businesses, right? Because if it were, we would pass those laws and there is, there is a cost, right? To, to, to regulating all yeah. of that and making sure that that's okay. We value women's economic contributions enough to put those legislations in place that say, we see you, we care about your participation, we care about your success. And that's that we're going to invest in equity. Right. As a nation in the United States, but around the world, only half of the countries in the world have pay gap legislation. It is really important to start looking at where the discriminatory systemic barriers exist and starting there I in agree. terms of the change that needs to happen. Right. You know, two points I'm going to make about this. One is I fear there are some forces who don't believe in equity for women and they just don't, will, will not allow that to happen. And they they feel confident that we're doing the right thing. And, and we know there are cultures where women are objectified and treated as a uh, as uh, objects and things you can have, not necessarily as full human beings, unfortunately. <laughs> but even in countries where there was there is a recognition that they contribute a great deal, there there is a paradigm of well, it's fine the way it is, and it keeps men in power. Uh, which uh, you know, I don't want to be too much of a feminist here, but I think there are some influences there. The other point I was going to make: uh, we have been uh, monitoring and following the. Uh, the child uh, tax relief. We think it's a very important idea. We know that it will reduce child poverty in the United States by some say 30, some say 50 percent. I, I was going to share, too, what we have seen is giving families money. Fresno did this five hundred dollars. People continued, if not more, worked. It did not mean you were on the dole. There is an expectation that when you make these investments, uh, people take advantage of them, but the data is very clear, and I'm sure you've seen that in your work as well. It you have to quantify the investment and what the, what it brings you in order for people often to be convinced. Well, and this is what we were talking about earlier, Renee. That this is an investment that actually these types of programs intergenerationally create growth. That's exactly right. 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 There's a dramatic cost. Apart, I mean, if you if you if you remove yourself from an empathetic stance, right? This is so painful. If you're looking at it, that poverty is so painful from an empathy standpoint, right? But then you look at it from a rational economic decision-making model. It does, we are shooting ourselves in the foot by not ensuring that as many children as possible stay out of poverty because those are the, they are the future and they are going to be able to contribute positively to GDP in the future if we invest in them now. That's right. Yeah. Right. Or if we neglect them, then who is it going to fall on? It's going to fall on, of course, it's their futures and the mothers and the women 
who are supporting them, right? That's what's happening now. That's right. Women is women is social safety net. We are absorbing the costs and then we blame ourselves if it doesn't work. It's not fair. You know, it's odd, though, when you look at this as there's, there's a pattern, because uh, as you're you're absolutely right, it's intergenerational. And unfortunately, those children who don't get that uh, bonding and those experiences and have those adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, they end up with mental health issues, with health care issues, and it costs us more in the long run. Uh, there's a famous piece of research that reflects that in our um, Talk, Read, Sing campaign, we looked at the investment made in early childhood education and uh, talking and reading and singing to children. A man named Heckman did the research. And for every dollar you invest, you get $7 back. Lower incarceration rates, lower rates of early pregnancy uh, and and higher income. Uh, People make more money when they finish school and high school, et cetera. In fact, it's interesting. If you can get children through third grade to read and then graduate high school, they earn a million dollars more. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is so I think what we need to turn away from, we need to go from the opposite from trickle down economics. Right. Tell me, tell me more about that. Well, we we tried that. Right. We've tried these sort of the sort of conventional economic policy making that says, mm-hmm. oh, you know, if we if we if we cut costs and really just focus on business growth, cut taxes, then all ships will rise. Right. And in Kansas, they started they tried that. Right. They yeah. cut they slash taxes because they were expecting a shot of adrenaline to the arm to the economy. And what happened? The economy tanked. The state went into a budget crisis and the state Supreme Court ruled that the funding for public schools was unconstitutionally low. Oh my. And I looked for gendered policy analysis, the outcomes in Texas. I couldn't find it. But my guess is that the whole experiment led to higher poverty rates, particularly for low wage women of color. Yes, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. This, this is, who bears down the, is not working. This, it is not working. And so let's try it a different way. Let's look at intersectional gender sensitive policymaking mm-hmm. that looks at what each what different people need to be successful. Not a once there's a there's a great book called Invisible Women, and she talks about a one size fits men approach to policymaking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that the assumption is that the lived experience of a of a man who's in power, who's making much, much of this legislation, right? We're dramatically behind where we should be in terms of female legislative representation, that that is the experience that they're legislating around. And they're not seeing what is the experience of a low-wage woman of color, right? How is that unique? And how can we how can we change the laws and the rules in order to support her? And I do think that the Biden administration gets this. Uh, We've seen a lot more. Focus they, on ch- child care, paid family leave. I think they're, they're as infrastructure, right? As infrastructure, right? There's a very gendered definition of infrastructure that persists. Mm-hmm. A man needs a car to get to work. A woman often needs a daycare center mm-hmm. or she needs an elder care support provider. Right. In order to get right. to work, because if she doesn't have one, she's probably going to have to stay home for the day. I like that word. I've been seeing that in the Biden administration communications, right? There's a human infrastructure and you're right. It will help to elevate women and give them more access, which is, is right. I, I do believe there are very many enlightened men and there is a growing understanding of this issue. And it's perhaps 
as a result even of the pandemic, people have seen in their own families how women have had to step back and how they're challenged by not having a childcare system. I know that we're looking at universal preschool in the state of California uh, as a result of many of these studies determining that if there's someone to take care of the child, educate them, early childhood education, as well as giving the mother an opportunity to find sustainable work, it really makes a difference in the economy. Are there any other states or policies you see happening uh, in this period that you would like to highlight that we ought to support? So, I mean, I mentioned before the gender sensitive policymaking and analyzing um, policy, economic policymaking from a gendered perspective. I don't know that we do that in this country yet, but there's no reason why we couldn't. Mm -hmm. Look at um, uh, how the um, economic stimulus decisions that we make now differently impact men and women and particularly different, differently impact men and women of color and then learn from that experience, right? Um, I think that's one thing. I think really seeing the social, uh, social safety net investments not as an expense but as an investment in the future. It's, it's a, it's, I think we have to we have to really rethink economic policy making at its core as a result of this crisis and 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 agree that the austerity measures of the past were leaving us down a road of inequality and mm-hmm. that really what we want for long-term economic growth is inclusive growth that if we're leaving behind whole parts of the population then we're just going to end up in disrepair as a society and as an economy um, so I think the kinds of things that you're talking about in terms of absolutely childcare support for low wage women workers, paid leave, access to paid leave, funded paid leave, parental leave. So this is important, not just maternity Child, not leave, just for children, but for elderly parents, right? Well, maternity leave and paternity leave funding, mm-hmm. because if you're Good just point. funding maternity leave, then women who take it are seen as a a cost, right? That you don't bear with men. And so, and so paid paternity and maternity leave is really essential. Um, And, um, and I think these types of, um, of, of payment subsidies for different forms of childcare, right? Maybe it's, maybe it may not be institutionalized childcare that works for one family. It may be intergenerational childcare and support from different family members. And so those um, those subsidies that can help offset uh, payment for different carers, different caring arrangements, I think are really important. Well, and you're, you're, you're highlighting another issue, which is valuing care. We talk about the amount of care women give to the family and are unpaid, if you will, and particularly in, in the case of relatives and, uh, uh, and elderly parents, as we're seeing aging of the population. Uh, so it's really instead of trickle down, it's from the bottom up That's funding right. this human infrastructure and human care infrastructure so that women are supported and it's an investment in their future and the future of their children. Yeah. So we can turn this around. You know, I started talking about the House Ways and Means Committee meeting at the beginning. Yes. That we have a, we have an economy that values child care, that values paid leave because they're seen as essential for building an economy that supports women. Right. That's right. 
That's right. Women, I, women and men and men have a huge role to play in advocating for this. As you were saying, there are many enlightened men out there who see that the value of this and those CEOs and those decision makers, they really need to be out there signaling that this is critical for the United States, just like Jerome Powell did when he was testifying before Congress. And he said the United States is falling behind um, other other countries because of our lack of a child care, uh, a, um, a supported uh, uh, child care system. You know, it's interesting. I don't get any calls for donating money or being part of an advocacy group for these things. I do get them for voting rights, which I totally support as well. But there hasn't been a galvanizing group around these efforts. And I do think women and men that are caring would step up and 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 use their voices to advocate for this. We'll have to look for that in the future, Mara. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap up, Mara. Any last piece of advice or recommendation you're going to make from Alex Fam's perspective? I think if we can come to a point where we are valuing and celebrating care as central to our how our econ economies function and what types of societies we really want to be investing in, then that will really change, I think, so many things in terms of whether our future continues to double down in a space of inequality or whether or not we're going to support a pathway towards inclusive growth. So uh, investing in the care economy as a, a matter of pride um, for us in the United States, I think is key to an equitable future. Beautifully said. Thank you. That was Mara Bolas from Oxfam. And they're talking about the research that demonstrates how women have lost income and support needed in this terrible uh, epidemic and pandemic that we've experienced in 2020. Thank you for spending time with us on The Deciders with insights. And I hope you gained some insight into the work of Oxfam and the role we can play to support the care economy. You can hear our podcast anytime on our website at FraserCommunications.com. We're a full service advertising and communications firm. You can find us at FraserCommunications.com. We'll be back next week here on The Deciders with Renee Fraser. Have a wonderful week ahead.